Welcome to another episode of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm your host, Matt McDonald. I'm the president here at Penta. Now, we have a special episode this week. We're, we're happy to announce that Penta has acquired Copperfield Advisory. Copperfield is a communications brand and strategy consulting firm based in New York. Copperfield joins several other teams in New York and will really add to our strength uh, in areas like brand positioning, transaction communications, talent strategy, crisis preparedness. We're very excited about this new partnership. And today I'm happy to welcome my new colleague, Andy Whitehouse, to the podcast to talk about this exciting news. Andy is now a senior partner at Penta and the managing partner of the firm's New York strategy practice. Uh, Having served as Copperfield's founding and managing partner, Andy has had a truly impressive career in communications and reputation strategy. He was previously chief communications officer at IBM, Willis Towers Watson, and McKinsey and & Company, and has more than 20 years of experience helping lead major companies and developing policy in sectors including financial services, private equity, tech, healthcare, philanthropy. Andy, welcome to the podcast, and more importantly, welcome to Penta. Thanks, Matt. We are so excited to be part of the Penta team. This is, it, it is an exciting day. I'm I'm, uh, I'm happy to be on the podcast with you, and happy to have you on the team. Let's take it back to the beginning. Talk to me. Talk to me about Copperfield and uh, the founding story. There, what was what was your vision when you started the firm? Because you started this after yeah. having done some pretty heavy duty stints in kind of corporate life as well. That's no. That's a, a great question, Matt. Obviously, um, after uh, the transaction this week and now joining Penta, I've had a lot of time to think back to that, uh, those sort of founding days and what what we were doing. And uh, as, as we enter this new part of Copperfield's journey with you, yeah, I've been reflecting on that a lot. So um, as you said in your very kind introduction, I was lucky enough to serve as the lead communications person in three big organizations, three multinational companies, McKinsey, the consulting firm, uh, Willis Group, that then became Willis Towers Watson as a result of a $18 billion merger uh, that I was pretty closely involved with, and then IBM. And those are uh, three, obviously, very well-known brands and three things, uh, and uh, three very different organizations. And uh, one thing that struck me as I thought about the experience that I had and was was getting into the idea of starting Copperfield is that all three companies really cared deeply about reputation and brand, and it had been, like I said, privileged to work in each of them. But I felt there was something special about the way that McKinsey thought about it, and that that was in part due to the fact that McKinsey is a private company, that partners of the firm, the firm own the firm. And I wanted to explore this idea that the alignment between ownership and leadership might have an impact on the way that an organization thinks about brand and reputation. But if your name is literally on the front door, or you are the owner or the founder of an institution, uh, my thesis was that that those companies, those foundations uh, that have that sort of a model would care even more about brand and reputation than perhaps companies with other with other forms of ownership structure. And so when we started the business, we decided we would focus on those on those folks because we felt they would put a particular emphasis and care deeply about the work that we would do with them. And I'm proud to say that that proved to be true. Um, although, our client base is not exclusively founder-led or owner-run. The vast majority is, and uh, and yeah, we've seen that it really is the case that founders care deeply about the way that people think about their organization, the way they perceive it, 
and are willing to invest real effort in in managing, protecting, strengthening uh, the organization's reputation. It's an interesting, yeah, it's very interesting the way you frame that. There's like the, uh, there's a common, I don't know, like I've I've heard this recently, people talking about giving business advice to uh, younger people within an organization of like, think like, as if act as if you own the company or think as if you own the company. There is a certain, uh, that mindset comes with a little bit of, I don't know. I mean, there's a little, there's some part of that that's long-termism. There's some part of that that gets wrapped up in kind of like uh, the brand of the company reflects more personally on you. It's an interesting question because I, I do think you're right. I don't think that that's exclusive to owner or founder-led companies. But in your experience with kind of the founding and with Copperfield, do you have a reason in your own head of why you think that's the case? What drives that kind of behavior and thinking? It is definitely, I think you're right about long-termism. I think the founders and owners naturally tend to think over relatively long timeframes and in doing so, understand and are clear about the impact that brand's reputation can have on their commercial success and their success in other dimensions. I do think it's also, there is, and we've seen this in a number of situations, it's sort of inevitable that the founders or the owners get wrapped up in the institutional brand as well. Um, and I'm sure, you know, we can both think of some situations where that's been very helpful and some situations where that's actually been, uh, been complicated. And so, um, we have, we've helped a number of organizations navigate the situation where a founder perhaps is going to, to move away, that they're going to have a, a non-founding CEO perhaps for, uh, for the first time. And if a founder is stepping away, I don't think they, they still, they're not going to lose that passion that they have for the business that they created. I'm certainly not going to lose the passion that I have for Copperfield now that we're part of the Penta team. I care deeply about uh, Copperfield's brand and the way that people think about our organization. And I hope that everything we've achieved will get will get quickly imbued into the into the Penta brand as well. That's a actually a great transition. So you you'd been at Copperfield doing the work there for some time. Talk to me about how you thought about this next step. What drew you to Penta? How you're thinking about how you how you thought about that process? So it's, it is certainly it's never easy for a founder to to make a to make a change like this. And so you want to be really sure that the people that you're going to be working with are the right fit for you. And honestly, Matt, since we first met and since I've got to know the the Penta team over the last several weeks, I could not be more convinced that that we're a perfect match. On a whole host of dimensions, just great alignment between Copperfield and the culture that we've developed over the past six years and what it is I see in your, your leadership and your leadership team and everybody else that I've met so far, all the other colleagues I've met so far at Penta. I think a few things that particularly stood out, we clearly have a set of shared values, whether that's about empathy and delivering frank advice in the same way that we do. I think Penta has the same sort of obsession with clients. Uh, that we that we have at Copperfield, and I've been really struck by the emphasis that you, in particular, put on um, professional development on development of the team, which has always been something that's really important to us. Second thing I would call it is just the what's clear and distinctive about Pension. Again, I think made it this this such an attractive match for us is the true combination of data, insights, intelligence, and strategy. From day one, we have have sought to ensure that. The work that we do for our clients is grounded in um, in real research. A number of members of the team have hinged Copperfield from 
really strong academic backgrounds. We're a place that loves facts and data, research, insights. And so I just can't wait to get my hands on the intelligence assets, PENSA, and think about how it is that we can bring them to our existing clients, but also to clients that we haven't met yet. Obviously, the Copperfield, it's mostly been uh, our, our research model tends to be qualitative in its, its structure. So just the millions of data points that you will have uh, that you're organizing and using to help clients make strategic decisions. I just, I couldn't be more excited to uh, to get my, my arms around that. And then there's the, the, the last thing, which is really important, both personally and professionally, is the team. It's clear to me that our team and Penta team are going to get together and integrate really, really quickly. And been so impressed with everybody that I've met and felt like the two firms have the same kind of operating culture. So this is going to be for, in my view, yeah, as I say, a really, it's a perfect match. I agree. It's interesting, I would say, going, not only going through this entire process, but thinking about the future of brand, reputation, communications, thinking about these questions is that as that field evolves, and as we think about the opportunities to use data, to use intelligence, to quantify some of these things, it is not a given that every firm or everyone in the field is going to have that same orientation in thinking through the opportunities that data presents without losing the intuition and sensibilities and qualitative sense of the world that can make the function the glue within an organization that can really impact reputation. But it's not a, that is not a clear path necessarily. I mean, the the field is, has a lot of people with backgrounds that do not lend themselves naturally to data, even though I would argue that, you know, the integration of kind of that deep understanding of the field with data is actually, I mean, that's where like the value is that we see is it's not just data alone. And it's not just intuition and war stories. It really is the combination that pressure tests the thinking. But, you know, yeah, that's, I, I would say that that is part of the reason that we're so excited about the, about having you all join us is that you, you clearly think that same way. And that is not, that's not a given for every firm. That is not a kind of, you don't find it every day. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think I do think it has been optional to some degree in the past for a number of organizations where it comes to the data analytics side of what it is that we do. That I've seen organizations that haven't taken the data analytics, the uh, the things that the intelligence part of Penta can do, that haven't taken that seriously. But I that's not. I don't think that world exists anymore. Honestly, I think the the expectation in the C suite is that the strategy should be underpinned by clear analytics that have been tested hard against the um, against the context in which the organization is operating. So, uh, for me at least, I think the the world of gut instinct being enough alone has passed away, and and that's why I think Penta is perfectly positioned to help chief communications officers and other other leaders in the C suite make decisions about brand and reputation in a way that they should have. They should feel like they have more confidence about about their choices than they did in the past. I mean, it's, it's strategy is all about making choices in the face of uncertainty. Penta is should be your partner to to, to make those decisions in a way that you know you're confident that you are uh, you're taking the, everything in the context into account. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that one of the dangers that I see in in client situations or the maybe thinking about a decision in reverse is that 
to me, bad decisions are the ones where people actually don't know what they're deciding, don't know the trade-offs, don't understand kind of the risk and reward that that is entailed. And those are those are questions that you know today in this field are answerable. There are there are more resources than ever to answer that, and that's just it has to be foundational to how. Uh, the function, how a function becomes successful within the corporate context, I think. And obviously, for many organizations, the data can be overwhelming too. And so yes. I think it's important that you have experience alongside the, the insights and the analysis that can then help You know, a, a, an executive who's looking at a, a huge dashboard or like a airplane cockpit of options that they could take to bring some experience that says, based on everything we see here, this is the right way to go. Yeah, I totally agree with that. They, there was a uh, when my when my children were toddlers, there was a, an expression in in the kind of grade school set of a dump and run, which was like during the play date, like the toys would just explode, and then they would, <laughs> and then the play date was over. And I do feel like the data side of communications can trend towards that as like this explosion of data, charts for the sake of charts, fun with numbers, without any real synthesis understanding or strategic implications that come out of it. And obviously, that's a core part of what we're trying to kind of reform as we go through this process. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So and I think that obviously the clients are really excited to have a a better understanding of the world in which they're operating. And that world is really complicated. And so the more the data intelligence can shine a light, but not create paralysis or, or make it harder to to take decisions. I mean, that's what it is that I see our role being here. Help people to be fully informed and then make decisions in a timely and effective manner. Yeah. I'm curious to hear more about your background and how you kind of first got into the field. You know, we, I mean, we're sitting here talking about data and communications and all the decision-making tools that are out there, but I'll still, I mean, I still remember when giving exclusives to Time Magazine and so that it would be on the news rack over the week. I mean, it is not, you know, this is a field that's been changing a lot. It's a function that has been escalating in importance within the C-suite over the past several years as just kind of the the public scrutiny and debates have, have escalated. Um, how did you first get into this discipline and, and what was it like then? Yeah, so I I, I suppose I started out in communications at the very beginning of my career without really knowing it because I was a policymaker in the British government. I served in uh, the first half of uh, Tony Blair's administration, so um, from the late 90s until around 2003, and covered a range of different policy areas. My particular focus um, was on tackling poverty and social exclusion in England. So I spent a lot of my time. Uh, thinking about how it is that we could, as a government design public policy, to address communities and the groups facing the most disadvantage in England. One thing you learn pretty quickly in government, you don't need me to tell you this, Matt, is that everything is a communications challenge as well as a as a public policy challenge. And you want to think hard about how it is that the policy will get communicated to all of the stakeholders you care about, particularly the general public. And so I learned pretty quickly working on uh, this this high priority policy area for uh, for the Labour government that needed to spend a good amount of time thinking about communications as much as thinking about how it is that the 
the policy would get uh, would get implemented. Went to graduate went to graduate school in the US um, after five years serving in in the in the UK civil service, and I know what struck me in I did a public policy degree, and what struck me as I was as I was working on that and thinking about the intersection between business, government, um, the third sector, was that the things that I'd learned in government were not widely understood in business, that at that time, which was almost 20 years ago, there weren't that many people in roles like ours who had decided to go and work in-house in a corporation and put at least some emphasis of their time on helping the, the company they work for navigate public issues, something that Penta knows more about than any organization on earth. And I was excited about doing that. So uh, at least a, a part of my time, uh, so I joined McKinsey, uh, where we both worked, uh, you and I, uh, spent nine years there doing a mix of communications and other things for the firm. Uh, one of those other things was helping business leaders think about their role in public life, what it means to be a CEO who is active in public debate, which at that time was still pretty uncommon, um, but at least in my view, is basically now a non-negotiable for the CEOs of, of most of the, the biggest organizations, that there isn't really an opportunity for them to, to opt out of uh, engaging on, on public issues. I was excited to see how I could um, use that experience uh, inside McKinsey, did a lot of research thinking about this particular question. And I've seen it more and more ever since. I really do believe now that, that organizations should be looking to bring in and bring on, particularly to their communications team, people who have that experience in, in government, in public policy, because to my mind, CEOs totally get the value of brand and reputation as assets of the organization. They really understand how important it is for them to be engaged on public issues, and many of them recognize how hard that is. And so having people who've, uh, who've had that sort of experience in-house and then being able to rely on, on advice and support from uh, from Penta feels to me like um, a really important thing. I feel very lucky to have uh, been in the, the different places I've been in. I was, um, uh, to your earlier point, I was part of the 10-person team uh, that managed, that led Willis Group, uh, which was a publicly traded insurance company that I joined after I left McKinsey. Um, at that time, it was still relatively unusual for a chief communications officer to be part of the, the executive team running a public company. Uh, again, happy to report that that trend seems to be uh, seems to be one of, of sort of growth. That it's more and more common with people who have your skill set and mind to be uh, at the at the leadership table um, in um, systemically important organizations of one kind or another. Yeah, I think I feel like the um, the need is there. The need is broadly recognized. By CEOs or within the C-suite, I also, I mean, on some level, the things, the things that uh, communications professionals can control is what they bring to the table, how they engage um, on these topics, how they think about their own development and the pieces that they can access, the data side, all the rest of it. I think that, um, I don't know, you know, I think back call it 10 years and there was a lot of talk about how um you know the the communications function needed to be in the room needed to be in the room i actually don't think that that's kind of where the the issue is now i think that 
like there's a wide recognition that they need to be in the room. I think it's kind of what you bring in the room that matters of whether you bring the kind of perspective, both from um, all the different stakeholders, whether you bring in the data side of it and the deep understanding, whether you bring in the business acumen. I think that the, the uh, I don't know, the supply and demand have shifted. The demand is there. It's a question. I think it's more incumbent on the field to innovate and really think creatively about their role in the room and what what that means. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, and it's it's driven in large part by, I think, a broad recognition that in the end, really good communications has the power to drive the business to huge success. Really ineffective communications can imperil an organization's ability to operate. And yeah, we, we've seen a few situations like that in, in recent weeks, I would argue, where yes. um, it's a it's a it, it really matters that that executives get this stuff right. And um and that means that the communications function needs to be on its um on its A game at all times. Um that is a great place to wrap it up. Andy, thank you so much for uh joining me today. Welcome to the team. We are so excited to have the whole team on board. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this edition of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. Uh, tune in next week and vi- visit us at pentagroup.co to learn more about uh, all the exciting things that are happening here. Thank you all. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Andy.